Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, etc., and welcome to episode two of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a retro game I used to play back when I was younger, or maybe a modern game I've played recently. I want to thank you very much for downloading and listening to our second episode here at the Wildlands. In this episode, we're going to be talking about Parasite Eve, one of my favorite games on the original PlayStation, and it's probably one of the most unique games ever, and we'll probably never ever see a proper sequel for this game. I'm really excited to talk to you about it. It's one of those games that will always stick with me, and it's funny, when I bring this up to some of my gamer friends, I'm pretty surprised the amount of people that haven't played this game. It's not a ton, and I'd like to think a decent amount of people know about it. I I feel like it's gathered kind of a cult-ish sort of following for being what it is, but at the same time, it's you've either played it or you haven't. So hoping the podcast maybe gives this game a little bit more exposure or gives someone cause to maybe potentially go out and find it in some capacity, but I absolutely love this game. I love the main character in this game, Ayabrea. She's one of my favorite video game characters of all time, and I'm really excited to sit down with you and talk to you about why that is and why this game is so special. So before we get into the podcast proper, a little bit of an introduction. Um, I will say I'm going to start putting timestamps into the description of the podcast, so if you're just here to listen to me talk about the game itself, that's fine. You won't hurt my feelings if you skip ahead a little bit, but I'll try to put timestamps in the description of exactly where you need to go to if you don't want to hear me ramble and talk. No, no offense taken. But before we get into the game then, a little bit of an intro, I wanted to give everyone a peek behind the scenes and at least let them know what's going on here in the Wildlands. So if you're listening to this, obviously the podcast is live, it's launched, it's in the podcasting stratosphere. Woohoo! Um, the other project that I'm working on is a YouTube channel, which I, I plugged last episode. Uh, you can find it over at Nomads Retro Wildlands. And that channel I want to make exclusively for in-depth video reviews with gameplay of video games, more kind of documentary style, the kind that you can sit there and watch and see my wonderful gameplay or put on the background if you just want someone droning in your ear for a little bit. So that should be up and live as we speak. The very first video that's posted on the channel is Parasite Eve. And I wanted to launch a video review and the podcast kind of in tandem this time around and see how that worked. This way you have a podcast you can listen to if you want a little bit more informal conversation. Or you've got a video review that you could sit, watch, or listen to for more in-depth analysis. Or you can do both. So I'm excited for you guys to check those out. Um, As far as the podcast itself goes... It's episode two, still new. I know these episodes aren't going to be the greatest, but I'm still trying to work out the best way to write out the scripts, which aren't really all that in-depth. I don't know if it's evident or not, but I'm doing a lot of this freeform. I've got bullet points, things I want to talk about, but I'm not really reading from a script. That works well sometimes, but I find myself being overcritical of myself. I stop, I re-record, I do this and that. So, But either way, I'm trying to find the best way to write these out in the interest of efficiency and time, but I just want to make sure I don't miss a a finer point of the game that I'm talking about. So I I say all that to say it's been kind of fun going through this process and figuring out what works and what doesn't and how best to utilize my time and capture my thoughts and make sure you guys get the best show possible. So uh, that's been really fun to work through. I'm also trying to work out a social media schedule of sorts. So we're on Instagram and Twitter at Retro Wildlands. And I said last episode, I am not social media savvy at all. My kids had to explain to me what a hashtag was. Yeah, I know that's cliche. Everyone knows what that is. I'm the old guy, blah, blah, blah. But uh, yeah, a year or so ago, or a couple years ago, I actually had to ask. I kind of knew what it was. They had to educate me. They rolled their eyes, went back to their phones. It was great. I have a great relationship with my kids. But anyway, <laughs> so I'm trying to work out a schedule of information I want to post to everybody in terms of the podcast, stuff that's going on around here. I need to start interjecting pictures of my dog because you got to meet Didi. You got to meet Didi, and I cannot wait to show him to everybody. So that's what I'm working on as well. Otherwise, I'm just preparing a list of games to cover on the podcast. I've got the next month or so of games figured out already, which is going to be a nice little segue. Yeah, nice segue into what's coming up next. So I mentioned on episode one that episode two would either be Parasite Eve or A Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. Uh, Surprise, A Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past is going to be episode number three. It's 
one of those games that I absolutely adore, but I have not ever finished. I know, start throwing the stones, but I'm almost done with it, finally. And when I finish it is when I'm going to record episode three, which should probably be in the next day or two. I'm very eager to talk about it. It's it's nice, though, too, because I've heard podcasts and watched videos about the game of people that have played it way back in the day, and they're going off memory of those 20, 30, however many years this game's been around. I'm going to have a fresh perspective. It's going to be fresh in my mind, and I'm hope- hopefully hopefully it'll make a good podcast and, and, and talk about it. I know a lot of people consider that their favorite Zelda game of all time and, and their favorite Super Nintendo game of all time, so I really hope I do it justice. As far as other social media of sorts, just a quick plug for my Twitch channel. It's still incomplete. I'm not doing anything over there, but I plan to, so I at least want to mention that I have it. You can find me on Twitch over at Nomads Retro Wildlands. The profile is still empty at the time of this recording. I don't really have much in there, but I'm there. I'm existing. You can find find our logo there. So eventually I'd like to stream. I won't have a schedule, I don't think. It'll just be whenever I have time or some opportunity, and I'll be streaming kind of here and there. So if you're interested, uh, yeah. Okay, I think that's all the plugs and, and ramblings I got for now, so let's talk Parasite Eve. This is a game that will always be one of my favorite games, and, and I'm really excited to talk to you about this. It has a unique story, it's got a fantastic main character, and gameplay that will stick with you forever, frankly. So grab a chair, scooch up a little closer to the fire, my friends. I cannot wait to tell you some of my stories about this game. So we're talking Parasite Eve for the Sony PlayStation, which was released in 1998. And I was a a 14-year-old little boy when this game came out. Wow, God, I am old. Anyway, so if I plugged my YouTube channel in the intro, I would have said that this game, Parasite Eve, is the very first video game review that I posted on the channel. You can find that channel over at Nomads Retro Wildlands on YouTube if you want to go there for a more in-depth video review with gameplay where I talk about, well, I get into the nitty-gritty of the story, the gameplay, the presentation, and all that. We're going to touch on that here, but episode two of the podcast, we're trying to stick with a more freeform kind of format, so a lot of stuff that I may miss here will probably be in the video review. Yeah, hopefully. So let's talk Parasite Eve. What is this game? It's an action role-playing game, and the best way I can compare an action role-playing game to maybe a more traditional role-playing game is, uh, let me use Final Fantasy VII as a comparison. I'd like to think if you're listening to this podcast, you have a decent idea of what Final Fantasy VII is. It's only the best role-playing game of all time, in my humble opinion. But either way, Final Fantasy VII, also released for the Sony PlayStation, I believe in 1997? Probably get shit for that if I get that wrong, but either way. It is a turn-based role-playing game in terms of its combat, and turn-based is my phrase, I don't know if that's the real phrase, but either way. So the way combat works is your characters actually have to wait their turn to be able to take an action, like attack or cast a magic spell, and how much they have to wait is very indicative of their stats, like their speed or dexterity or whatever plays into that. And same with the enemy, they have to wait. Once it's their turn, they can act and then take an action, and it's, it's a little bit of a back-and-forth kind of a mantra. An action RPG, specifically Parasite Eve, there is a little bit of that waiting to act, but you can move your character in real time when there's battles happening. So in Parasite Eve, and we'll get into more detail of this a little bit later, but when battle starts and there's enemies on screen, you can move your main character around while you're waiting for your ability to act. Some more modern action RPGs, you can attack, defend, cast spells, whatever, in, all in real time. You don't have to wait for a turn, per se. But Parasite Eve is a little bit of a hybrid. 
you're waiting for your turn to act, and then when you can, you stop, you take your action, and then you continue to move your character around to dodge attacks, fireballs, and things like that, and get to feel like a ninja if you get out of a battle and you don't take any damage, but it's it's really cool, but that's kind of the big premise of Parasite Eve when it comes to its combat and, and how you interact with the enemy. So how does it compare to Final Fantasy VII? Well, still a fantastic game. We're going to get into Final Fantasy VII at some point in this podcast. Spoiler alert, it is my favorite game of all time, for a myriad of reasons. It may not be the best role-playing game ever, and I'm certainly open to criticism for stating that it's my favorite game of all time, but it's got the biggest nostalgic ties for me, it's got some wonderful memories attached to it, and it's still a property that I enjoy today. I am a Final Fantasy VII fanboy, I am not going to even contest that. But either way, we're not here to compare Parasite Eve and Final Fantasy VII per se in terms of gameplay, because Final Fantasy VII is a better game. But Parasite Eve is one of the most unique role-playing game experiences that I've ever played, and this game is so unique in that sense, I'm pretty confident there will never be another game out there quite like this again, and I'm really eager to talk about what makes Parasite Eve so unique. So, So when I think back to it, I think back to when I first got my hands on it when I was younger. I can't remember if I bought it myself, if I saved up my own money and bought it myself, or if I got it as a gift, but I I know that once I started hearing about the game, and I think it was primarily through magazines, maybe a little bit of word of mouth, all I knew is it was a role-playing game from Squaresoft, the same company that churned out Final Fantasy VII, and that was the only reason I needed to buy this game. I don't care what it's about, I want it, gimme, and I got it eventually. So Parasite Eve is marked as a cinematic RPG on the back of the CD case. And that's what makes Parasite Eve so unique as well, is its visual presentation. Now the graphics, I mean, this game came out in 1998. The graphics are are fantastic. Still today, they were amazing back in the day. Especially the computer-generated image cutscenes, CGI cutscenes that they have in the game. They were really pushing towards exactly that, a cinematic sort of an experience. And when you play this game, CGI cutscenes that are really high-res graphics and, and, and really well done are interjected fairly seamlessly in between the story set pieces. And there's times I remember playing this game when I was younger, and even today when I replayed it, it felt like I was playing or even watching a movie in some spots. CGI cutscenes and the visuals just really just really nailed it. The soundtrack is also one of my favorite video game soundtracks of all time. It just created a perfect atmosphere and just a wonderful game as a whole. The other nice thing about this game that I absolutely love is even though it's a role-playing game, it is not long at all. I believe when I was younger, it took me about 10 hours to complete this game start to finish, and I replayed it for my YouTube channel to capture some footage, and I I took my time, and I finished it in about 12 hours. And there's even some after-game content as well, so you have a reason to replay the game again. So I'd say all told, by the time I was done done with this game, I put in about 20 hours. And for a role-playing game to be able to walk away feeling like you've completed it and you've gotten a wonderful experience out of it, you can't ask for more than that. And that's, ugh, I, I use that as an excuse to replay this game multiple times. I can't remember if my, my core group of nerd friends ever played this game or not. I do have some memories of being over a buddy of mine's house, and I think I brought the game over to show it to him, but I don't know if he was actually playing it or not, but oh, that, that makes me think of a dumb memory, actually. So I, one of the things that you can do when you start the game is you can rename the main character that you play as. And that was a big thing, I think, around that time, too. I never played a ton of role-playing games when I was younger, but Final Fantasy VII, going back to that, you can rename all the characters you come across. I usually renamed Cloud after myself and Barrett after my best friend, and it was fun. It added kind of a personal touch to it. So you could do that with Parasite Eve, but I never really knew very many girl people in general when I was younger. (laughs) All my friends were guys. I was very socially awkward. I think I knew like one or two girls, and that was because I admired them from a distance. So I remember when I was showing this game to my, my buddy, he noticed that the main character's name was the name of a girl that he knew I had a crush on at the time. And I remember him looking at it, kind of looking at me side-eyed. I looked at him, and we just had that wordless kind of acknowledgement that 
hey man, I get it. You really like that girl. But also at the same time, it was like, man, can you get any more pathetic? (laughs) And I appreciate him for never speaking a word of that to me. So yeah, that was fun. That was embarrassing. But (laughs) all right, so let's get into the game proper. Now, what makes Parasite Eve so special to me, and I think to those that have played this game, is the story. I'm not going to get too deep into the story. I really don't want to spoil it. Not that there's anything that's really going to sour the experience if you know ahead of time, but I really enjoyed playing through the game the first time I did it and kind of unraveling the mystery and the connections between the main character and the villain and all that, so I don't want to spoil too, too much of that experience. I mean, the game's been out since 1998, but I do want you to experience this game for the first time if you haven't already. So yeah, I'm kind of getting my head of myself, but I really do love this game. So we're going to speak to a lot of that. So the game itself takes place in New York City, and a CGI cutscene is going to open up the game, which shows you the Statue of Liberty. It kind of pans in and shows you areas of downtown, and then it ends on Carnegie Hall, where an opera is taking place. Now, the game itself opens up on Christmas Eve, and we're introduced to our protagonist, Aya Brea, alongside a no-name date that she has with her that's kind of a dick. Uh, so let's, let's talk about Aya a little bit. I am 100% positive that's how you pronounce her name, Aya Brea. I've heard a couple other pronunciations, but we're going to roll with that because that sounds right to me. So Aya is a rookie NYPD officer. She's been on the force for about six months. She's incredibly smart. She's very headstrong, very determined, and she can be a little naive at times. I I believe she's in her mid-20s when the game itself actually takes place. And I will say, Aya Brea is one of my favorite video game characters of all time. Period. Point blank. Thinking back to games that came out in the late 90s or that were out, I remember female protagonists really starting to make themselves known in video games. I'm talking about Lara Croft from the Tomb Raider series, Jill Valentine from Resident Evil, and you can even lump in Tifa Lockhart and Aerith Gainsborough from Final Fantasy VII. But Aya Brea from Parasite Eve always stood out to me, even against these great characters. Because what makes Aya really stand out to me is she was brave, but she was compassionate. She was determined, but she was open-minded. And even though you typically just see the side of Aya that's focused and determined, she really can be human and be empathetic, especially when harm befalls others or she feels guilty about the things that happen to other people that may be out of her control, but she still bears that burden and is very human because of it. The other portion of her character, too, is she's a very attractive blonde woman, and the thing about that is her body or her imagery in-game is never inflated sexually. That's never a focus on her character. She's a good-looking woman, but that is not what defines her. When you open up the game and you're playing through the opening through that opera sequence, she's sporting a very elegant black gown, and that's the thing about her attire. It's elegant. It's not sexy. It's not eye-catching. It's just, it encompasses sort of, well, I'm going to keep using the word elegance. And that is one of the many things that cemented Aya as one of my favorite video game characters. Even when I was younger, as a 14-year-old pubescent boy, Aya was just a badass video game character to me, and she's someone that runs into danger first and thinks about the risks later, and everybody wants to be that person in their mind, right? So, speaking of running into danger, that's going to be a great segue into talking about the actual opening of Parasite Eve. So when the game opens and Aya comes out of her limousine car whatever with her douchebag boyfriend, date person. You get to take control of her and move her into the opera proper. So the game opens from there with a CGI cutscene. We're introduced to Melissa Pierce, the opera singer on stage, uh, who's a beautiful brunette wearing a long red gown, and she's singing some of the most beautiful opera tracks I've ever heard. Not that I'm an expert on opera in any way, shape, or form, but either way, it's all vocalized in-game. And as Aya is sitting there in the audience and watching the opera, it becomes very apparent that Melissa and Aya share some sort of a connection. And then at that moment, once that connection is realized, Melissa turns around and starts setting everyone around her on literal fire. And it is glorious. Is that bad to say? 
Yeah, it looked great. Anyway, <laughs> so another thing about Aya that makes her a fantastic character is as everyone is catching fire all around her, bodies are falling from up high on the rafters or wherever, she comes up from behind her seat, strapped with her police issue sidearm, and immediately wants to confront this threat. Everyone else is running, but Aya is standing there ready to fight. And her, her loser boyfriend, date, whatever he is, is just being a chicken shit. And what does Aya do? She just shoulder checks him out of the way, and he is out of the picture, never to be seen again. Ah, it, it made me smile even back then. So we take control of Aya at this point, and what do we do? Well, we run towards danger. We go towards Melissa, and we confront her on stage, and it's very evident that she's, she's possessed by some sort of a malevolent force or something, and she starts speaking to Aya about mitochondria. Now, here's where the story really starts to go pretty apeshit in kind of a good way. For those of you that don't know, mitochondria exist within our human bodies. They are, they're called the powerhouse of the cell. They actually give the cells in our bodies energy to function, and they're actually independent of our cells, if I understand that correctly. So they're like, I don't want to say that they're their own beings, but especially in this game, the cellular mitochondria in Melissa is self-aware, sentient, and it's starting to take over Melissa. And that idea is what drives a lot of the story here. So the game opens up into your very first battle, and it's more or less a tutorial battle. But what makes this unique compared to tutorial battles nowadays is you play a game today and the game stops, gives you a text box, tells you press B to swing your sword, or hold L2 to block. In this tutorial battle, the game teaches you nothing, but the game's simplistic enough to where you get a pretty good gist of how the combat system itself works. I'll probably talk about that more a little bit later, but through this tutorial battle, Aya has an awakening. Her mitochondria start to awaken, and now the player is given access to, I'll call them magic spells, but the game calls them parasite abilities or parasite energy. So not to get ahead of myself, Aya, the main character, as you control her, will have the ability to cast spells like uh, healing spells or be able to inflict her enemies with negative status effects. Final Fantasy fans, I think, the, I think the job class is more of like a green mage, where you cast spells that just inhibit your enemy, slow them down, poison them, give them the inability to attack, things like that. And Aya will also have access to offensive spells too. She can channel all of her mitochondrial energy into a bullet and do massive damage at the cost of not being able to move for a second while she gets her bearings, that kind of thing. But of course, Aya starts out with none of that. You actually have to get that as you level Aya's character up. She'll unlock more powerful healing spells, more powerful offensive abilities, and even at top level be able to just unleash her mitochondria, let it take complete control, and do a Final Fantasy VII-ish omni-slash type of an attack uh, for huge damage. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. So the tutorial battle. As you go through the tutorial battle, Aya realizes that her mitochondria is awakening, she's connected to this woman somehow, and once the battle ends, Melissa is no longer Melissa. Her name is now Eve. And the big premise of this game is the ongoing battle feud between Aya and Eve. So when that battle is over, Melissa... Eve, quite literally, takes an exit stage left, and you're left with control of Aya. So what do you do? Of course, you're running after her. So the beginning portion of the game is you trying to follow Melissa into the theater. You go deeper into the dressing rooms, the prop rooms, and I don't say this to say that the rest of the game is bad by any stretch, but the very first part of this game where you're trying to find Eve and figure out just what the hell is going on is my absolute favorite part of this game. The environment is very dark and foreboding. It's very quiet. The music that plays is just perfect. It's top-notch. It accentuates that very creepy atmosphere. You feel uneasy while you're looking around. You really don't know what to expect. It's just perfect. And then what makes it even more perfect is as you start to explore the downstairs area of the theater, Aya comes across her first enemies that she has to fight. 
So she comes across a rat, and the game breaks into another CGI cutscene, and it shows that this rat is having an exceptionally bad day as it starts to mutate into a creature. It grows, its bones pierce its skin, its face is elongated, its tail breaks into a three-pronged sort of trident-looking thing. It's just, ah, so good. And when I was younger, my 14-year-old self was a little grossed out by the imagery that I saw. Granted, the CGI's today, I don't think they're as scary or grotesque, but I think I'm kind of desensitized to a lot of that stuff because I I do play a lot of horror, a lot of survival horror-type games, so it is what it is for me today. But either way, it was... It was something else, watching this rat mutate, and then the game cuts away from the CGI, and almost immediately, you're in battle with this creature. So you have to take the knowledge you just learned from your tutorial battle, and you have to beat this creature. And when you beat this creature, you realize that you gain experience points, and you start to level up. And level up pretty quickly, too, which is nice. So as you continue to look through the theater and look through all the prop rooms and all that, you occasionally encounter more creatures. Aya does run into Eve a second time, and it's very uh, clear at this point that Melissa, Melissa is gone, and Eve is all that remains. Eve clearly understands that Aya and her are connected and implores Aya to come with her, join her. Their mitochondria will see mankind into a better future. And you're just as confused as Aya at this point. You have no idea what's going on. All you know is you need to take this threat down. And that's a main driver for that portion of the game. Once you get towards the end of that experience, really, that's where the game kind of opens up from there. Aya is left with more questions than answers. She starts doubting her own abilities, her own existence, really, and starts to wonder if she herself is a monster like Eve is. And because she's so headstrong, because she's so naive, because she's so caring and compassionate, she has conflicts within herself for a good portion of the first half of the game. She wants to do right by those that are around her, but she can't quite understand why it is that she is the way she is. She couldn't save the people at the theater. There's certain people that she can't save throughout the course of the game, and it really eats at her as a person. But she just shoulders those burdens, and she keeps pressing forward. And that really is a good chunk of the story of Parasite Eve. We'll probably get into more tidbits of it as we continue to talk, but yeah, that's... All of what I described is more or less force-fed to the player within the first 30 to 40 minutes of the initial gameplay. And that is not a bad thing. This game goes from 0 to 60 in almost 2 seconds flat, and it's, it's a fantastic ride. You go into the next portion of the game kind of having an understanding of what the objective of the game is, but things keep constantly evolving and changing, and it's a story that you're really vested in. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you this is one of the best video game stories of all time by any stretch of the imagination. I, I know that as I left this game when I was younger and then replayed it when I was older, there were certainly aspects of the game that I forgot, but I never forgot that feud between Aya and Eve. Just them going back and forth at each other, Eve trying to tug at Aya, Aya trying to resist and do the right thing. That's what really stuck with me with this story. And what will become evident too as you continue to play through this game is there are no supernatural elements here. Yeah, Eve may be throwing laser beams at you and rats are mutating in front of your eyes, but it's all explained by real science. And what makes that unique is it's actually pretty easy to follow science, for the most part. Now, we're going to go off on two paths here, so let me, let me put a pin in the actual science portion of it. Because we're dealing with science and nothing really supernatural, that's what makes the game's plot seem very plausible to me and believable. And that's why I really felt vested in the story and it was kind of relatable to me, as opposed to maybe a zombie outbreak in the Resident Evil series or anything like that. I felt like something in Parasite Eve could actually happen in real life. But on the flip side, I do want to speak to the realism of it. I don't know hide nor hair of how mitochondria actually work and all of that. I have to imagine that even though mitochondria are independent in our bodies, I can't imagine they're going to rebel, take us over, and see us into a new future. But still, that's, that's what makes it really interesting to me, that 
it is kind of grounded in fact. And the last point I think I want to make as far as the story goes too is even though you progress through the story and you meet characters that have a decent idea of exactly what's going on, the game does a pretty good job of keeping pace. You're going to hear some science terms like molecules and biology and I know there's other bigger words I can't pronounce and we're not going to try, but you get the idea. But even despite all the big words, the game keeps it simple enough that you can still kind of keep pace with what's going on. Now, I'll say the first time I played it, and of course I was 14, I didn't quite understand all the little nuances of it, and it wasn't until I replayed it when I was older that a lot of the stuff really kind of made sense and stuck with me. But either way, you never get a sense that you're lost in the story or you don't really know what's going on. You always have a sense of what you're trying to do and what your main objective is, and I really, really appreciated that out of this game. So Aya doesn't go through her adventure alone. Being part of the NYPD, she does have a partner, and her partner's name is Daniel. Daniel's a lot like a big brother, almost a father figure type to Aya. And the best way I can describe him, since I can't really describe him to you, I don't know, visually, is he reminds me a lot of Barrett from Final Fantasy VII. And Daniel's a tall guy, he's very headstrong like Aya is, and he's always rushing into danger foolishly, and that gives him some really good character moments. And you can't help but sympathize with him at times, too, because Daniel is an actual father. He has a young son named Ben, who he got sole custody of after he divorced his wife. And where you sympathize with him is just with his constant struggles with his son. There's not a lot of scenes in Parasite Eve that really dive into this dynamic with Daniel and his son, but the ones that are there are pretty powerful and pretty poignant. Even though Daniel does have sole custody of his son, he's working full-time at the NYPD, so he barely gets to see his son. There's a scene early on where Ben, his son, wants to go see an outdoor concert at Central Park, and Daniel, of course, has to work, he forgot all about it, and Ben's like, You're the worst dad ever! Yeah. Or something along those lines. And it's, it's a little heart-wrenching to see. Daniel tries so hard to be a good dad, but at the same time, he really puts his heart and his efforts into his work, and he really does care for Aya and wants to see Aya succeed, and he wants to be there for her as a partner, so you can kind of see that tug and pull as the game goes on. And to further sort of compare Daniel to Barrett in Final Fantasy VII, it's a lot like Barrett's relationship with his daughter, Marlene. There's a lot of similarity there with how they interact. The next character that Aya is going to come across is Kunohiko Maeda. I hope to God I pronounced that correctly, but he is a scientist from Japan. You'll learn when you play the game that there was a similar incident like what's happening in Parasite Eve right now that happened in Japan, but it wasn't on as big of a scale, I guess. But once Maeda, Maeda gets wind of what's going on here in New York, he races right over to try to figure out what's going on. His character is very much in contrast to Daniel and Aya. He's a lot more soft-spoken, he's kind of annoying at times, but he's that typical nerd archetype, right? But I will say that over time, he does kind of grow on you. And you can tell pretty early on that Maeda is very fascinated with Aya and develops a pretty obvious crush on her too, and it's, it's almost cute, right? <laughs> he likes to give her good luck charms in between certain parts of the game, and fun side fact, at least to my knowledge, no one has figured out what the hell these good luck charms actually do for Aya in terms of gameplay. Some people speculate that they reduce the rate of enemy encounters, some have speculated they increase her overall attack power, but really all they do is take up inventory space, and there's certain times in the game that you can't get them out of your inventory, which is really freaking annoying. But either way, just the presentation of these good luck charms is kind of adorable, not gonna lie. And because of those interactions, I think that's what makes Maeda kind of grow on you, at, at least that's how he grew on me. Again, he's he's very smart, he's kind-hearted, and he just wants to help. So you can't help but want to give him a pat on the head every now and then. But those are the really big main characters. And of course, there's Eve, who we've kind of already talked about. But really, I'll say again, Eve is a fascinating villain. Because all throughout the game, she's just trying to goad Aya into joining her cause for world domination at the cellular level. But Aya's not having it. And even though Aya has much of the same abilities as Eve, and her potential isn't unlocked quite yet, she's just... She wants no part of what Eve wants to create, and that creates a great rivalry and some pretty awesome dialogue throughout the course of the game. So, yeah, really, really fantastic villain. 
Now there's other minor characters that you're going to run across too. The only other two noteworthy that I want to bring up are Wayne and Torres, who you're going to find in the gun room of the police station. They've got a really fun dynamic. Wayne is, I assume, a younger guy. He's got a big love for guns. He loves to modify them and play around with them. And he tries to hit on Aya any chance he gets. But Aya just shuts him down. I think there's one scene where he literally tells Wayne to cut the crap and she starts moving on to business, which is another reason why I like Aya. But that's Wayne. Torres is the older, more mature police officer who runs the gun room, and his whole thing is he's actually very much against firearms. He had some sort of a personal tragedy. I don't know if it was a death in his immediate family. I, I can't remember, but something happened in his life where he is very adverse to guns, which makes for an interesting dynamic when it comes to Wayne and Torres, because Wayne, the younger, I want to modify guns and blow shit up, whereas Torres is the older, guns aren't the answer to everything, you need to tone your shit down. It's fun to see them interact with each other, especially near the middle portion of the game where their character arc, if you will, sees a rather interesting conclusion. Conclusion. Now, there are other members of the NYPD staff that you interact with, and they do kind of have their own semblance as a personality, but they are forgettable, and that's fine. What makes Parasite Eve so good in terms of the story and characters and all that is you don't have to keep track of a ton of people. Though when you do interact with these individuals, even if it's just a short line here or there, it helps make the NYPD feel very warm and almost lived in, like a safe place. And that's a very good thing, because you're going to be spending a lot of time at the police station, backtracking back and forth to store items, modify your weapons, and and all of that sort of stuff. And we'll get to that here in a little bit. Because now, we're going to transition this conversation over to gameplay, and how the game itself actually plays. So the combat in this game is actually what makes Parasite Eve so unique. So real quickly, I want to talk about a little bit of the combat and kind of how, you, how your character develops, how Aya develops as you go through battle. So I kind of touched on it earlier, but just a quick recap. So the way battle works is Aya is able to move around in real time, but she has to wait to take an action when her active time bar fills up. And when she can, she can fire her weapon or cast some parasite energy or use an item. Now, I know back in the day, that was revolutionary to me as a 14-year-old. And today, maybe it's not as much of a revolutionary concept, but it's a very simplistic system. It's almost addicting. It's that kind of tug and pull of trying to judge your distance between the enemy, stay close to them to where you can be the most effective with your weapon, but you want to stay far enough away from them to be able to avoid and dodge their attacks. So you kind of have to make that judgment of how you move yourself around the screen and, and all that. And some of that can kind of go out the window too, because as these battles happen in real time, sometimes you'll be in a very wide open space and there's a lot of room to maneuver. Other times battle may happen in a narrow hallway and you may have to suck up a hit or two because you don't really have much place to go at that point. So that adds an interesting element to battle as a whole. So when you do take an action and you fire your primary weapon, when you press the X button, I believe, this green dome is going to open up around Aya. And what this represents is her weapon's effective range. Different weapons have different ranges. Handguns kind of have a shorter range, as well as submachine guns. Rifles have an incredibly longer range by default, so there's some differences between the different weapons that you use as far as range goes. But when you open up your dome, time is going to stop, and everything on screen freezes, and you can select what target you want to shoot at. So ideally, you would want to get Aya in a position to where when you open up the dome, you're selecting a target that's within the dome, and if you do hit the enemy, which generally you will, you'll inflict the maximum amount of damage that your weapon was meant to deal. Now, you can target enemies outside the dome. Let's say you're on the other end of the screen from an enemy, you're able to act, you open up the dome, and they're not even close to being in it. You can still fire at them from a safe distance if you don't want to close that gap, but the problem is your accuracy is going to decrease exponentially, and if you do manage to hit your target, it's not going to be for anywhere near the amount of damage that you're actually meant to deal with that weapon you have equipped. So that's something you have to consider as well. Now, when it comes to parasite energy, most parasite energy, if I recall offensively, you can cast anywhere. It's not dependent on your weapon's range or that dome. If you want to cast a spell that makes your enemy go slower, 
you can just cast it at any point wherever you're standing. Same with the healing spells. Obviously, you're casting them on Aya herself, yourself as the player. You don't have to meet certain expectations to do it. You just have to be able to have a full active time bar to be able to do that. Uh, Same with items. If you want to use an item, it doesn't matter on range. You just got to throw it at yourself. When you deal enough damage to an enemy, obviously they die and expire into the void. You are awarded with experience points. When you get experience points and reach a certain level, obviously Aya levels up. And when she levels up, her core stats like attack and defense and how quickly her parasite energy recharges are all increased. Same with you're able to increase your item inventory space and how quickly the active time bar charges. So just your typical role-playing game sort of stats, everything increases. Now, the other bonus points that you get in conjunction with leveling up are the more interesting, and they are literally called bonus points. So plus points for creativity, I suppose. But when it comes to these bonus points, they'll actually collect in a pool, and you have the ability to use these bonus points on specific stats. You can specifically spend your bonus points on increasing the amount of time that the active time bar charges, or you can pump your bonus points into a specific weapon that you're using to increase its stats, or into a specific armor piece that you're using to increase its defense. So even though Aya is kind of leveling up at an even keel as she progresses through the game, you can use these bonus points to really focus on certain aspects of Aya's build. Do you want her to be a powerhouse? Dump all that stuff into your weapons. I I tended to do that a lot. I favor damage dealing more than anything. If you want to beef her defense, you can dump your bonus points into her armor. It's nice that way because you have the ability to tweak her as you go. But your bonus points are limited, so you have to be mindful of how you spend them, though. Typically, when I would play through the game, I sat on them for most of the game. I really didn't know how I wanted to spend my points. Even though I would dump them into a weapon, and you can transfer them from weapon to weapon, which we'll get here, get into here in a bit, I tended to just sit on them. Generally speaking, when you get near the end of the game, you're about level 35, 36, if I'm not mistaken. And even not spending any of my bonus points, I was still able to go toe-to-toe with a lot of the game's tougher enemies. Granted, they took a couple more bullets than they probably should have to put down, and some of the boss battles probably went a little longer than they probably needed to be. I never felt like I had to use bonus points to progress in the game. So, really, you can kind of do with those with whatever you want. So let's talk about the weapons. So I touched on the weapons in terms of the range, but kind of a, a, a little bigger, broader picture on the weapons. You've got a good, healthy assortment of ones that you can find. And the weapons that you do find, the descriptions are modeled after real-life weapons, I think, most of the time. At least some of the ones that I'm very aware of. The M4A1 assault rifle, I think, is in the game. I know that's a real weapon. The MP5 submachine gun, pretty sure that's a real weapon that's in this game. So there's a lot of that sort of stuff. Now, granted, the graphics, again, are PlayStation 1, 1998. You're not really going to see visually the differences between these weapons, but it's a nice touch. The weapon types that you have access to are handguns, shotguns, rifles, submachine guns, rocket launchers, grenade launchers, and a billy club, because why not? (laughs) So real quick. All the weapons have three core stats. They have offense, which is your attack power. The higher it is, the more damage you deal. The range, which is the higher that is, the farther you can fire that weapon and it be effective. And then bullets, which is the amount of bullets you can fit into that weapon before you have to reload. All of those stats are inherent across all of your weapon types, except for the billy club. Obviously, you can't shove bullets in that thing, but that'd be kind of funny. But every other weapon has kind of built-in advantages and drawbacks. Your handguns, they fire quickly, they do a decent amount of damage, and I'm fairly positive that they have an increased critical hit chance. Critical hit meaning that when a bullet lands, you're going to do about 1.5 times more than your typical uh, damage that you would deal. So that tends to happen a little bit more on handguns. I personally favored handguns. If I had a handgun in my inventory, I tended to use that personally. It was that perfect mix of drawback advantage when it comes to your movements and and how quickly the gun fires. It just worked for me. Shotguns are bigger and they're a little slower by definition. They are more powerful, but they're slower to fire. Now, 
they have the inherent ability to be able to hit multiple enemies at once, as most shotguns do, so that definitely gives it an advantage. Bullet capacity is also a little bit lower, so you're not going to be firing a ton of bullets before you have to reload, so that's something to consider. Rifles, their range is better than all the weapons you're going to be coming across. That's just kind of their inheritability, but they do fire much slower than most of the other weapons. Their bullet capacity is kind of in the middle there, and their overall power is pretty decent, but not overpowered. Grenade launchers are pretty special. They fire explosive rounds, they tend to do high damage, and they take forever to reload. But the nice thing about grenade launchers is they seem to use just normal bullets, because you carry around bullets with you, and they seem to just dip into your bullet capacity, so you don't have to come across specific ammunition for your grenade launchers, so there's something to consider there. Speaking of that, you are able to come across a rocket launcher if you take on a side quest. Those you have to collect rockets for specifically. A rocket launcher is kind of self-explanatory. Super slow to fire, massive damage, and the ammunition's rare. I never really used the rocket launcher, never really found it enticing to use. Used it once, and it's kind of like a bottle rocket. Ah, that was cool. And it's over now. And then <laughs> submachine guns. Typically, they are the weakest weapons that you come across, but you have the ability to fire more shots at once, the fire rate is incredibly high, and they tend to be very versatile weapons. I liked submachine guns, I didn't use them a ton. If I didn't use a handgun, I typically used a rifle. And I know in the game, after the opera sequence and you start your initial investigation of figuring out how to find Eve, Torres in the gun room gives you access to your first rifle. And I use that a lot before I got comfortable going back to a handgun again. So how do you make your weapons more powerful? Another thing that makes Parasite Eve very unique is the way that you can upgrade your weapons. Weapons and armor are going to litter Parasite Eve. You're going to find a metric shit ton of them, and that's a good thing. Well, maybe not that many, but either way, a lot. Now, guns, weapons, armor, they don't upgrade themselves. They don't level up as you use them, and some of them are pretty weak. And there are bigger ones and better ones that you find as you go but you can continue to tweak them using items that you're going to find in the environment called tools. So here's an example. Let's say your starting handgun starts off with 10 attack power, 50 range, and it can hold 10 bullets. You can transfer some of those stats. There's a meter off to the right-hand side of when you're looking at your weapon. You can transfer some of those stats, maybe one of your offense, maybe two of your range, and one of your bullet capacity. Those are part of your weapon stats, but they are transferable between weapons using tools. So if I have a better handgun with 15 attack, 60 range, and 15 bullet capacity, I'm obviously going to use that one, but your initial handgun isn't completely useless. You can take those little stats, move them over to your better gun using a tool. So it gives you incentive to keep finding and hoarding weapons and keep finding the best one, but even the weaker ones aren't completely useless because if you find tools, you can move stats over from your old guns to your new guns. The caveat here is when you use a tool to move some stats over, you're going to lose that gun. That weapon will be dismantled and lost forever, which doesn't seem like a bad thing. Why would you want a weak gun? Really? You don't want to take up inventory space. Just, just dismantle it and move on. And while that is an advantage, there's another portion of the weapon armor system that we haven't really talked about yet, and that's abilities. Every weapon and most armor sets come with different abilities. And not to go too far down the rabbit hole, but let's talk about the weapons real fast. So every weapon has a fire rate ability attached to it, at least most of them do. Times two, times three, times up to ten I've seen. And that is how many bullets you can fire in one usage of Aya's turn. You would think a higher fire rate would actually make more sense, but the more bullets you fire on a single turn, the less overall damage... I'm sorry, not... Yeah, the less overall damage that you actually expend into the enemy. You actually want to fire your weapon less. Plus, not to get off on this tangent, if you're standing in place firing 10 bullets, Aya will literally stand in place firing all 10 bullets before you can move her again. And since this is an action RPG, like we discussed, mobility is a key. So you don't want to sit there and fire 10 rounds. Two or three is kind of the best. But anyway, there's other abilities like having poison bullets, a spread shot, which is usually unique to shotguns, counterattack, 
if this ability is on your gun and you take damage, there's a chance that Aya will stop what she's doing and counterattack, even if her active time bar is not filled yet. There's quick draw. That means that when the battle starts, Aya's ATB gauge will be filled automatically and she can just act right out of the gate. So there's abilities like that. Same with armor. Armor can give you increased hit points, uh, give Aya more health. Armor can give you certain resistance to certain status ailments like poison or stiffness or blindness. Now, these different abilities are stuck on each of these weapons, but with tools, you can move those abilities from one weapon or armor set to another. So instead of moving stats over, you can move abilities over. But remember my caveat, if you use a tool on a weapon to move something over, you're gonna lose it. So you have to decide, based on the weapons that you're currently using, what weapons that you're not, that you're okay with losing to transfer stats and abilities over. I hope it comes off as simple as, a, as the system actually is, because it's really not that complicated. Really all it is, is you're settling on your preferred weapon and playstyle, and you're finding weapons and armor to continually feed into the one item that you're currently using, or transfer over to something more powerful that you find. It, it, it is that simple. Where the game gets a little bit more involved, and this is if you want it to be, is you can start building multiple items, weapons, armor, for different situations or different types of encounters. I never really got that involved in it, but there is certainly an allure to getting that deep into it. So, But that feeds into the gameplay mechanic, too. You want to get in battle to have the combat experience because it is fun. You want monsters to drop items. You want to find loot in the environment and more equipment and stuff so you can go back to the police station, find your tools, make your tweaks, and come out of the police station feeling like a pretty big badass. And that's generally how it worked. <laughs> so that's the general gameplay loop. You go through the story visiting real-life places in New York like Central Park, Soho, Carnegie Hall, all of those. You try to unravel the mystery between Aya and Eve, and the story itself progresses through text-based communication. There's no voice acting or anything like that, and it's perfectly paced between exploration, watching the story unfold, exploring areas, trying to find items and loot, and then the combat. A lot of really good games nowadays find a way to marry all the different parts and pieces into a really good cohesive whole. And that's what translates, at least in my opinion, to a really good player experience. Like, maybe this is kind of an off-base comparison, but The Last of Us. The Last of Us on the PlayStation is a perfect example of marrying all the things that it does well almost seamlessly. There's not one thing, in my opinion, that it does well over the other. It's a full package. And Parasite Eve really does that. It has kind of the full package when it comes to all of that. So like I mentioned before, this game is relatively short by RPG comparisons. What happens when the credits get to roll? I did want to speak a little bit to that. So. New Game Pluses are kind of the staple nowadays, I think, where you can replay the game, but you can replay it from the beginning by keeping either your equipment that you've accumulated or your levels or whatever it is, and just kind of stomp through the beginning of the game overpowered and try different things. Parasite Eve does have kind of a New Game Plus mode. They call it EX mode. That is Echo X-Ray. And the way this mode works is you're not taking anything back with you in terms of stats. Aya's level resets. The items that you store in the police station will carry over to your new playthrough, so anything that you've saved and stockpiled. But you also get to save your favorite weapon and your favorite armor piece, and you'll start the game with those. Now, I mentioned this in my video review kind of briefly, but the game doesn't really give you a good indicator that it's actually doing this. Near the end of the game, and not to give away too, too much of the story, but you're given the ability to engrave your favorite armor and item, and you get to rename them in your menus. So instead of having an M92F handgun, you can rename it to uh, whatever, Johnny's Pistol, uh, whatever, any whatever. As long as it fits in the text box, you can rename it to whatever you want. And then as long as you do that, those are the weapons that carry over to EX mode. But again, the game doesn't tell you that. So plus it's ugly looking too. I would engrave my armor with like my name uh, and, and engrave my weapon with maybe somebody else's name or something like that because I took it seriously. I needed to engrave a name on this thing. So my weapons just 
they didn't look as cool, but that doesn't matter. Aside from carrying over your favorite weapon into EX mode, the game mode itself is inherently harder. Now, I've seen conflicting reports of this online, but based on my own experience, the enemies are a little tougher, and they do hit for a little bit more damage, and I think that's to compensate for the fact that you're probably using an overpowered piece of armor and weapon at this point. So there's that to consider. But the biggest draw is there's a new location on your map called the Chrysler Building, which is a real building. You can access the Chrysler Building at any time during the game as soon as you get access to your world map. And the Chrysler Building is quite literally 77 floors of monster-infested hell. And every 10 floors that you go up, and you're literally going up 10 floors, are infested with new monsters, mostly palette swaps, so you're seeing kind of the same types of enemies, but there are some unique ones in there too. And every floor, there's a hidden item room that has different items where you can find the game's best weapons, best armor, and best items. And here's the kicker, and especially when you're playing this game back in the late 90s, when you're playing a game that doesn't have, like, the, the fluidity of being able to save whenever you want to, like modern games. When you enter this dungeon, when you go and start your floor, the floor is randomly generated. Or at least I think it's randomly generated every time. So you've got your twisting corridors, you can go up, down, left, right, the next area you go into could just only take you to the left. It's, it's really just a big maze, and you have to find stairs to go to the next floor. But within each floor is that hidden item room that I mentioned too, so you kind of want to find that as you go. It's pretty easy when you start, but the difficulty ramps up really fast. And it's really recommended that you don't start the Chrysler building until you're at the very end of the game before you go past that point of no return. You'll know what that point of no return is if you've played the game, and I don't want to get into it for spoileries, but either way. So you go up every 10 floors, and then when you get to the 10th floor, you have to conquer a boss. So you better not die, because if you die, you're going to have to start all the way back at the beginning, because you've not been able to save this whole time. So there's that element of tension there, too. Once you conquer every 10 floors, you get access to an elevator key, so you can consider those 10 floors conquered, no more enemies will appear, and you can kind of explore them pretty much however you want. Take the elevator, skip every 10 floors, and just keep progressing up the tower. It's a really fun challenge, and if you really like the game, it's an extra added incentive to play it through again. Um, I really had fun with it, but one good thing about it, and then one kind of eh thing about it. The good thing, no, no, great thing. The great thing about conquering the Chrysler building is you will get to see the game's actual canonical ending. Not to say that the game's ending of the, uh, of the original game, your first playthrough wasn't bad or didn't have anything to do with the story, it absolutely certainly does. Conquering the Chrysler Building will give you that closure that you're looking for at the end of your initial playthrough. It's, again, not, giving nothing away. The boss is very difficult, especially if you're not tweaking your items properly and leveling up and all that. But once you complete that boss and finish that boss encounter, the game ends perfectly, in my opinion. And that leads me into kind of the eh portion of the Chrysler building in EX mode. Once you're done with that, you're done. In my opinion, I had no reason to go back and replay the game again. Unless you want to go back and continue to keep powering up the items that you're using, your preferred weapon and armor set. There's really no reason to go back and play the game again. There's nothing new, there's no new items or anything like that. You can just keep playing over and over again to get overpowered. There's certainly an allure to that. It just never was something I wanted to pursue. I typically would just stop playing the game after EX mode, put the game away for a couple years, and then I'd come back to it and it would feel very fresh all over again, which is yet another thing that this game does really well. So, so there's, there's that. Last couple things I want to touch on kind of briefly really is the overall presentation of the game. Like I said, the graphics for the time were pretty good, the CGI cutscenes were pretty stellar, and they still look pretty good today, I think. But what really sets this game apart and makes it unique is the atmosphere that it cultivates when you're playing this game. And the atmosphere are things like the presentation of the graphics and the amazing, amazing soundtrack. Like I mentioned before, all the areas that you're visiting are all around New York. They're all real locations. Now, I don't know if the actual locations 
that you're seeing in game are mapped out to spec, but you're visiting places like Central Park and, and all that, like I mentioned. But what makes it special, too, is really, it happens early in the game, so I guess not a spoiler per se, but a large chunk of New York is evacuated, and you're not seeing really anybody. You've got your police officer buddies at the NYPD, but you're not really seeing civilians running around or anything like that. So the idea of an empty New York, I I know other games have done the post-apocalyptic thing with New York, like The Division comes to my mind. It's You have to kind of do it a certain way for it to really feel lonely, creepy, desolate, that kind of thing. And Parasite Eve absolutely nails it. And it nails it visually, but then it really nails it even farther with its soundtrack. This soundtrack was composed by legendary composer Yoko Shimamura. She did music for a couple popular games. The two that really stick out in my mind right now are the Kingdom Hearts series and Final Fantasy XV. But Parasite Eve, I believe, is where she kind of got her breakthrough in terms of video game composing. But the soundtrack that she put in place here is absolutely legendary. The way that she marries the piano tracks, the opera vocalization, just the systematic sounds, it's, it's very isolating, it's very lonely, it gives that creepy vibe. But on the contrary, too, those exciting pieces of the story, especially when you're in battle, are very catchy, they're very upbeat. The soundtrack, in my opinion, is what really puts the seal of greatness on this game. The package was already fantastic, but this soundtrack really seals it. A great example that I, I, love to, I love to talk about when mentioning the soundtrack is very early in the game when you're in the theater, you're starting to track down Eve and you come across a dressing room where you find a woman's diary. And as you're reading the diary, there's no music which is another thing the game does really well. In its decision not to use music in some spots, it really accentuates the atmosphere. So with that in mind, back to this diary, when you're reading this diary, it's completely silent. You're flipping through it, and you're getting a feel for a woman who really wants the lead in the play and really wants to do well, and she's not feeling too well, so she's got to take some medication to try to stay on the up and up. And then halfway through the diary the opera vocalization starts to chime in. And it's right about that point in the diary and as well as hearing that music cue that you're reading Eve's diary. And I know this has been pointed out in a couple other videos that I've watched on Parasite Eve 2, but this moment really stuck in my mind even when I was younger because just that single opera vocalization with nothing else accompanying it just made Eve that much more fascinating of a villain for me and really accentuated how awesome this story is. Just, just fantastic. It's funny because I still listen to this soundtrack even today. And it's funny because sometimes my wife will come into the office where I'm working here at home and someone singing opera all of a sudden blares through my speakers and every once in a while she'll look at me kind of funny and it's just like, just, it's fine. It's fine. (laughs) All right, as we wind down, I did want to mention one more thing about the game. It spawned two sequels that I will eventually have podcasts about, I'm pretty sure. Parasite Eve did have a sequel, Parasite Eve 2. It's a follow-up that's completely different in the way the game plays. Many have mixed feelings about it, and like I said, I'm going to cover it on the podcast at some point down the road, and it will definitely be covered on my YouTube channel. I already have a video review of Parasite Eve done and in the bank. It's just a matter of tweaking it and, and getting it out to the public. Now, the third installment of Parasite Eve, this, this is a controversial one. It's a game that doesn't even have Parasite Eve in the title. It's called The Third Birthday, and it was exclusive to the PSP, the Sony PlayStation Portable. And it is... You know what? I'm going to keep my cards close to my chest here, and I'm going to wait until the podcast for that one, because I'm going to eventually do a video review on The Third Birthday, and I'm going to have a podcast about this game. If you've not heard of it, I wouldn't be super surprised because I don't feel like, at least when I was younger, this game was really marketed as a Parasite Eve game because it really, it really isn't. And yeah, we're just going to stop there. I'm going to, I'm going to get off on a tangent, but that's, that's for another podcast. But I think that's about all I've got for Parasite Eve. I, I really hope you guys enjoyed the podcast because I, I really enjoy talking about this game and I, I, I'm sure I missed some features or points or whatever, but I, 
I absolutely adore this game, and it will always be one of my favorite games of all time. I absolutely encourage anyone who has never played it to find a way to play it and give it a go. I know it's available on the PlayStation Network because I've downloaded it and I've played it on my PSP. I have it on my Vita as well. And it's only, last I checked, $6, $5.99. So you really have no excuse to download it and give it a try. Now, I am a little out of touch with PlayStation's new tiers for their PlayStation Plus program, and I know on some of them you have access to older PlayStation 1 games, so I don't know if through that service Parasite Eve or its sequels are available, but definitely give that a look, because it's very possible they might be available there. So all that to say, you have no reason not to try this game, and I absolutely implore you, please give this one a go. Do it for me. Do it for Nomad. That was Parasite Eve for the Sony PlayStation. Thank you very, very much for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you like the show, you can support it by giving us a good review on your platform of choice. I would really appreciate it if you did. If for some reason you didn't like the show, don't know why you listened this far, but I thank you for taking the journey and giving us a chance. So what's coming up next? Uh, Episode 3 will be uh, A Link to the Past from the Super Nintendo. So keep an eye out on social media for more of what's coming down the pipeline after The Legend of Zelda. And speaking of social media, my shameless plugs again really quick. You can find the Retro Wildlands on Twitter and Instagram at Retro Wildlands. And then we're on YouTube and Twitch eventually at Nomads Retro Wildlands. Thanks again for listening, and I'll be back next Thursday with another episode. Until then, my name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands. 